I have never read a work of fiction that has uh, included such an accessible description of some very complicated economic concepts. Ministry for the Future is just the last of a long series of projects where economics takes center stage because it's crucial. Economics is the operating system of the world. Yes. And if it's a crappy operating system, you get a crappy result. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. One of the things I hadn't accounted for, Nick, when I first started working with you back in 2014 was how many goddamn books I'd have to read. I know. Oh, oh my know. God. It's It started with your two little books. I know. I left that out of the job description. Yeah. True Patriot <laughs> and uh, Gardens of Democracy. But you did tell me I had to read Piketty's book. And that's actually when I first signed up for my Audible account because I just uh, it was too thick. Yeah, I had to I had to listen to it to get to get through the whole damn thing. And of course, one of the things that's meant is that I've read so many books about economics and evolutionary psychology and anthropology and entropy and uh, network theory, game theory, you name it, all the different fields that have fed into our evolving understanding of the economy. It has left me with zero time to read fiction during the eight years I've worked with you, Nick. I have not read a single novel until just a couple months ago. Right. I have not read, I don't think, hardly a single novel since you've come to work for me either. <laughs> <laughs> for the same very for the very same reasons. Uh, until we both read The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. So let, let me just summarize. It was pitched yeah. to me as, oh, you got to read this book. It's about it's about climate change. And uh, the book takes place. It, it starts in 2053, not that far into the future. And it starts with, I won't go into detail, but an absolutely um, horrific depiction of a climate catastrophe that is not far off from some of what we're already seeing today with uh, these... Uh, uh, severe heat waves that have been appearing around the globe, then it moves on into the the global response to it and the ongoing climate disaster uh, throughout the world. And it's very believable in terms of the setting uh, because the depiction in 2053 really is not far off from what uh, scientists predict if we continue to do nothing, if we don't slash our, our greenhouse gas emissions. And then it goes into how we respond. And a lot of the response turns out to be economic, yeah, right. <laughs> which helps explain uh, not just why we ended up reading this book, Nick, but why we were so uh, eager to talk to its author, Kim Stanley Robinson, because I have never read a work of fiction that has uh, included such an accessible description of some very complicated economic concepts. Yeah, I was really struck in reading the novel by how robust both his understanding and his description of economics is. And um, it'll be interesting to talk to him because I'm sure it couldn't have been easy to sell the idea that he was going to write a book effectively about economics right. uh, to a publisher. But indeed he has, and it's riveting. And I think um, in many ways does a better job of explaining economics than we do sometimes. I mean, it's really, it's really persuasive and powerful, which is why we wanted to bring him on the podcast and talk to him about his thought process and bring the book to the attention of our listeners.
I am Kim Stanley Robinson. I am an American science fiction writer and the author of The Ministry for the Future. Well, we're very excited to have you come on. I was uh, just uh, chatting with Nick about this. I want you to know, Stan, that your book was the best novel I've read since coming to work for Nick about eight years ago. Uh, because since then I have, this is actually the first <laughs> piece of nonfiction I've read because he hasn't left me time for anything else. Exactly. We <laughs> grind pretty hard on the economics nonfiction here. Uh, right. <laughs> well, um, you've read more than I have, but there is probably a couple of books that we have must have read in common um, recently, or at least uh, for me, they were impressive. Right. Uh, tell us. I read um, The Price of Peace by Zachary uh -huh. Carter about yep. Keynes. Great book. Great book. And then it's either called The the Currency of Politics or The Politics of Currency, maybe the latter by a Stefan Eck or Ike. Ah, that would be new to us. Yeah, ah, that's a that. good book. This okay. Is, I think he's a student or, or was, um, maybe he was a postdoc student of Adam Tu's. Ah, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Adam Tu's uh, recommended. He's a smart guy. Book. Yeah. Yeah. He recommended this book on his uh, Substack, so I got it and read it. It's basically a history of money. Uh, it starts with maybe like Aristotle, and then goes to the 18th century with some stops up to the present. That's great. Well, I mean, your book, The Ministry of the Future, has to be the most economics-heavy uh, <laughs> novel anyone has written in a very long time. Ever since my New York 2140, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm going to have to read that one. Yeah. Well, this this raises a question. This book was recommended to me by a number of people. And ostensibly, I thought it was about climate change. But really, it's a book about economics. Uh, I'm wondering, was that your intention when you started the book? Or did it the economics come out in the writing? I knew it was going to be there from the start. Uh, as I mentioned, I wrote New York 2140 in probably 2016. And so it's a description of New York after sea level rise is something like 50 vertical feet. So lower Manhattan is underwater and is a kind of a super Venice. And it's all about the financialization, essentially. a uh, It's not quite a metaphor for the our current meltdowns, but it's it it has a lot about the present as well as the ostensible year of 2140. So I had been working on it then, and I've been working on the economics of climate change ever this whole 21st century. My uh, a Washington D.C. trilogy set in D.C. in the near future during climate change had a economic strand in it, but it wasn't strong enough. It was more of like, what would the federal government do or the National Science Foundation? But it became more and more obvious that although we have various technical solutions to climate change, we don't have a good way to pay for installing those technological changes, nor do we have a good way of, of um, assessing the actual economics of what we're doing on Earth. In other words, the gross world product, gross domestic product, whatever you want to call it, the, the highest rate of return, profit itself, th that these are all crappy, cheesy, short rate cheating um, rating systems that the world yeah. is run by. So I needed to uh, keep uh, hammering away at it. And Ministry for the Future is just the last of a long series of projects where economics takes center stage because it's crucial. Yeah. Economics is the operating system of the world. Yes. And if it's a crappy operating system, you get a crappy result. Yes, which we could, yeah, late global neoliberal capitalism. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm glad that you put it that way because many people would say that it's politics that runs the world. But no. they're not getting that actually politics is the establishing of a political system, of an economic of system. Of an economic system, right. That it... political economy is the real focus of study. And yes. yet there are no departments for it. There isn't really much. Yeah. It's either one or the other. And once you divide the two, you aren't talking you aren't really talking about the real right. situation. Well, it wasn't always that way, but that's what it's been for the past hundred years or so. I mean, yes. Yeah, I agree. Well, certainly the last 60 or 70 years. And, you know, the, the attempt by neoclassical economics to divorce itself from political 
uh, and moral concerns is part of the problem, right? Is yes. that, you know, you end up with this set of people with immense power who who literally believe that there's a right thing to do economically, uh, which may or may not intersect with the right thing to do for people and the planet and so on and so forth. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just yeah. so nuts. Well, it was a power play. I mean, you talked about it, people in, with immense amounts of power. It was a power play saying that if yeah. you just focus on this and then you and you don't look the other way, you can put yeah. blinders on yourself and pretend that you're doing well by doing well for the rich and powerful. Yes, exactly. So we're, I'm interested in where, I mean, you know, your book is certainly a lot more insightful about how the world works and where we should take it than most economics textbooks. Where did your insights come from? How did you come to this? What What was your journey? Good question. And it's been such a long journey that I'll have to try to de-strand it or clarify it, yeah. even to myself, yeah. much less to yeah, you. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm a literature major and English major, but my, my PhD advisor was Frederick Jameson, who is the world's most uh, famous Marxist literary critic. And so he gave me, along with a lot of other people, a kind of reading list, an education that is a leftist education. Mm -hmm. And so I come to it from that perspective of being a leftist American and kind of sympathetic to eco-socialist or eco-Marxist um, understandings of the world, framings, uh, the yeah. paradigms, ideologies. And then in terms of economics proper, when I began to get serious about it, I was uh, asked to join a group down at UC Santa Cruz called Rethinking Capitalism. So Robert Meister ran this group and um, uh, Randy Martin who has unfortunately died since, who wrote The Financialization of Daily Life. And then Dick Bryan, who was an economics professor down at the University of Sydney until his retirement. They are leaders uh, uh, in giving me things to read and explaining things to me in person or over Skype back in the day. Slowly but surely, my reading list, got people like uh, Joseph Vogel, The Ascendancy of Finance, or... Maurizio Lazzarato, uh, Governing by Debt. These are two books that you guys should read and discuss if you haven't already. They are powerful histories of how we got to our current impasse. Yeah. After uh, writing Ministry for the Future, my education as such has continued. In fact, yeah. it's probably been intensified by the people that have wanted to talk to me since then. And yeah. Um, Adam Tooze's Substack has been great, uh, like like getting a college education for fifty dollars a year, um, and and it goes on like that. The New Left Review, uh, the London Review of Books, John Lanchester, Michael Lewis, these are great writers for me in in trying to learn. Uh, they've been part of my orientation and part of my education. And then it just, you know it, what it's like, a million articles. I think actually I should re remember to mention uh, Delton Chen, who had a paper online that talked about the carbon coin that mm -hmm. led to directly to the thing that's in Ministry for the Future. So you see how it goes. It's kind of a ramshackle. It's a autodidactic. It's a self-education without any formal uh, training to speak of. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, as you look around the world, are there things that give you hope? Oh, yeah. My Lord, um, the thing is, when I, I wrote Ministry for the Future in 2019, in about, I don't know, six or 10 months in 2019, I was well prepped. I I knew I had a, a good method in the in the anthology of genres and the eyewitness accounts I was throwing at it. I wrote it fast. But 2019 was like pre-COVID. It was pre-Biden. Yeah. It was pre-Lula and the whole, every, the whole turn since 2020 including COVID slapping us in the face and teaching us that the biosphere is real and can kick your butt and change everything and right. wreck civilization. Well, these lessons have been applied to the climate change problem. And I was at COP26, uh, courtesy of the UN and the UK government, and had 38 events in 12 days. It was really uh, quite an education for me. I, I didn't make any particular contribution, but I sure saw and learned a lot. 
I should have known it before I wrote ministry, but that just isn't how it happened. <laughs> so, um, you know, things like the International Monetary Fund, they've got these special drawing rights. Well, what the hell is that? That is, I think, another form of quantitative easing that's being snuck under the over the transom or under the door sill, um, uh, massive infusions of money to countries, to governments in distress, and often it's climate distress. So now at COP27, they've set up this empty bank balance of um, loss and damage funding. It's great that they have it, but everybody is, of course, dubious about how the, the necessary billions are going to be, where they're going to come from. And so I'm thinking, well, the IMF, special drawing rights, maybe uh, they could throw in some money. Maybe we need to get to, I should also mention Thomas Piketty. I didn't mention him before. Mm -hmm. He's been an immense part of my um, education. He's encouraging all by himself. Um, his work, his, his thought, his, the way that left liberal economists are getting more radical. And again, I didn't mention modern monetary theory, which you right. all must be yeah, uh, interested sure. in. Our, our, our most popular podcasts are the ones with Stephanie Kelton. Ah, uh, there you go. So yeah. so this, um, this uh, strand of thought is kind of new, kind of encouraging. Um, I guess what I'm feeling is that uh, people are becoming aware that A, climate change can wreck everything, be neoliberal capitalism is totally unprepared to cope with it and will just ride the Titanic down to the bottom. Yeah. Uh, trying to ed, make marginal profits by selling shit off as, uh, in fire sale fashion mm -hmm. and they won't change their ways. So now no. the actual economists doing theory at the level of political economy, they are... Um, uh, you might say, spurred to action by the present crisis. And uh, so some interesting results are coming out. And and some of these people are bleeding into the Biden administration and at the World Bank. I mean, I've had talks with people at the Fed. I've had talks with people in the Pentagon. There are many indicators that the crisis and the the um, kind of overwhelming, what Tuz calls the polycrisis, the danger that it represents is enough for a kind of all hands on deck type response. Now, of course, it's a grindingly slow and there's lots of resistance and so on and so forth. But the reasons for hope are everywhere. Uh, I mean, certainly the IRA passage of the IRA has been a a signal moment. That was huge. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was really, really big. And I, I believe you may be connected to my one of our friends and my writing partner, Eric Beinhocker, who runs. Ah, uh, Yes. Uh, the Institute for New Economic Thinking at Oxford, and and you know he 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 was just telling me that um, he was asked by the um, may have been the president of the European Union to comment on some things recently, and they're all in a panic in Europe about what to do in response to the IRA, and he was like, "Well, you should pass one too." <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. there's a very obvious response to this, which is to compete with it, um, uh, yeah. which is precisely what we want to happen. Right. Yeah. There's some kind of virtuous cycle. If you yeah. if you if you acknowledge that we are not going to completely invent post-capitalism instantaneously to cope with yeah. the crisis, that we're going to have to use the tools at hand then for sure um, the EU, the US and China in a kind of race for green dominance is a good yeah, race. To it's have. a good race. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm curious, Stan, in, in the book, if I'm summarizing this correctly, significant progress isn't really made until the central banks get on board. If, if you could just explain why, why in your thinking the central banks are are so important to addressing this issue and uh, whether you think uh, in the real world it's actually possible to get action from the central banks? Um, I think it is possible, but I also think that your question points out a kind of peculiarity of my novel, which is that um, being a novel, I needed a plot and characters. <laughs> and and so there needed to I needed to pick some aspect of the climate change problem, and I actually picked several, but some crucial central thing, where you had a, a hero or heroine who could do things that helped in a major way. So 
I, and it also occurred to me that the central banks are crucial because they create fiat money and the big powerful central banks could make a difference by by doing quantitative easing as they did in 2008 and when the pandemic hit, but making it green quantitative easing. And now the Network for Greening the Financial System, which is a study group of all the big central banks, it has got a white paper about this very issue, how to green money at its very source, so that when you make up money in the first place, especially in quantitative easing fashion, that instead of giving it to the banks to their usual selfish, stupid lending, mm -hmm. yeah. which is worth talking about on its own, but to keep to my track here, that the central banks would release it uh, on a carbon reduction basis that they would green money. So um, again, this white paper existed before I wrote ministry. I didn't know about it. I, I focused heavily on the carbon coin, which I think now is a kind of a symbolic way of talking about a whole suite of actions. Yeah. Would you would you explain to our listeners who have not read your book what the carbon coin is? Sure. And this is kind of comes out of Delton Chen's uh, paper, uh, uh, a hypothesis and risk assessment is in the title. I forget the title. It's long and technical. But um, the idea would be this, that the central banks would, if you could prove, and so again, at, at this point, you need a rating agency, that you had drawn carbon out of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, you would get paid for it on a one carbon coin per ton of carbon type basis. And the central banks would back that coin, give it a floor such that they would be paying you more than it cost you to draw that carbon down. So um, this would just be the the central banks in, in a kind of a, a, I guess what I would call this now, a carbon coin is a, one aspect of green uh, quantitative easing would be to make it specific to drawing carbon down. Now, a quickly, a secondary question comes up, which I hope your podcast will be discussing with the relevant experts. What if you keep carbon in the ground that you already own? So mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the petrostates. The petrostates are looking down the barrel of an economic gun. They've promised at the Paris Agreement they're not going to sell and burn their carbon. They are in for trillions some of these countries, it's 60 to 80% of their government income is selling and burning those very fossil fuels that they promised not to sell and burn. So um, this is under-discussed, let me put it that way, because it's an ugly problem. It isn't obvious how to pay these people. Here, I think that the COP27's loss and damage thing, one of the losses would be, well, we're not going to make our, our billions of dollars from selling our coal, our oil, our natural gas. We'll keep it in the ground. You need to help us by um, building clean energy production in our country, as well as compensation for what we're losing here. Now, and since this is an economy show, I can say that payments would have to be uh, discounted. They'd have to take a haircut. It would have to be amortized and paid out over 100 years on a schedule, like it would have been sold in the first place. And probably it would have to be entailed by uh, requirements to be green with it, to not go into kleptocracy mode. And so these countries would be giving up some sovereignty. On the other hand, they would need it. And every country has given up some sovereignty by signing the Paris Agreement. So we're all member states in the Paris Agreement, and a member state is not the same as a nation state. Um, the EU is the perfect uh, example of the differences. And member statehood is a different psychological and a different economic and financial arrangement, uh, an emotional arrangement. This is why the anti-immigration movement, the whole tribalism, the nativism, these are people insisting on a fiction of nation statehood, which is a kind of a hoped up uh, uh, tribalism of the 19th century, when everybody is actually a member state and it's a one planet situation. So that's the ideological battle going on there. Financially, economically, how do you generate the uh, literally trillions of dollars necessary to compensate these countries that if they go bankrupt, will lose their police, their teachers, their airports, and indeed become a failed state like uh, a Somalia or a, or a Syria? Um, we can't have that happen to Venezuela and Nigeria and all of the Arab states and Russia, for instance who have resorted to a criminal invasion in order to solve their version of this problem. So um, it's your it's your job, economics podcasts, yeah. <laughs> to discuss this under-discussed wicked problem. 
Right. It's uh, the the stranded asset problem. It's yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's by the way, it's not just the carbon in the ground. It's the infrastructure that we have built hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of infrastructure to convert that carbon into energy. Yes. <laughs> also, <laughs> right. You know, like... one thought about that, that I've been taught about since ministry came out, this was at Glasgow, is that there are parts of the uh, nuclear power uh, cheerleading crowd, uh, the industry itself saying, look, give us your old coal plants and we will throw in a refrigerator-sized thorium-burning nuclear plant like, like the Navy has in their submarines, and we'll use that same plant, that same grid, and keep it going, but not be releasing carbon to the atmosphere. Well, it certainly struck me as a plausible argument, yeah. and there was a guy high up in the Department of Energy in the Biden administration who was at these meetings in Glasgow nodding and going, yeah, good idea. Now, I've heard about, you know, people talking about small thorium reactors for, I don't know, I'm I'm almost 60, most of my, my adult life, and yet huh. we never seem to move towards them. Yeah, well, this would be like fusion power, right? It's always 10 years away, no matter where you are in time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I have the feeling that, and this is just impressionistic, and I remain an English major and anomalous, but my uh, impression is that this is... Uh, whether it's thorium or uranium, that small safe nuclear is something that uh, would, if you told the Navy to take over the the nation's nuclear program and do it as a non not for profit, it's really the cost cutting, the co cutting of corners, and the safety infractions of trying to make a profit of all out of all this stuff. Mm -hmm. The Navy hasn't had a nuclear accident in about seventy ever. So that's 70 yeah. years of people living five feet away from a nuclear actor and walking away healthy. Um, it seems to me the expertise, the technical um, uh, expertise is there. Yeah. So tell us, do you have a, a next project in mind? Are you going to do more <laughs> economic storytelling? Yeah, because because uh, and I just want to put in a vote for doing more economic storytelling because yeah, uh, I I I was really impressed the way your characters uh, clearly explained some rather complex economic concepts. Well, thank you for that. I feel like I've learned by reading writers like Michael Lewis and John Lanchester, and I can do it. I'm not the only one who can do it though. But there aren't that many novelists who can do it or are interested enough. And and editors blanch when you say, I want to write economic science fiction. They literally go, <laughs> they're hey, like, yeah. you gotta be kidding. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I can tell a good story. My editor, Tim Holman at Orbit Books, whom I love, I said to Tim I over lunch uh, years ago, I want to write about global finance. And he he just said, That's a terrible idea, Stan. <laughs> and uh, by the end of that lunch, he was saying, well, look, if you want to do it, why don't you set it in New York? Um, I had already written 2312, which has solar system finance, if you want to go to that level. And in that novel, I had had a brief pass through of a Manhattan that was underwater up to about the third story, and it was still functioning fine. He said, why don't you set your story there? New York is the capital of finance anyway. You've got a local habitation and a name. You can have some fun with the physical landscape as well as the financial. And we're all underwater right now financially. And so by the time lunch was over, he had solved my problem for me in an impressive way. So I yeah. own for that. And so a lot of people come to my work by way of ministry for the future. I can send them back one novel. And New York 2140 is in finance and economic terms, it is a backward step in my own understanding, but it's not that far backwards. And it's definitely about financialization. I have a trader, a day trader in a skyscraper in New York, and he's doing the kind of thing that Wall Street still does, <clears throat> looking for profit by finding the marginal places where you can do trading and, and just make money, whether the market goes up or down. So a hedge fund kind of guy. He creates an index that is like the Case-Shiller Index for housing prices around the world, except it's for intertidal properties. So <laughs> property that's on dry land when it's low tide and is fully flooded when it's high tide. And so the intertidal property pricing index is a joke, but it I'm hoping that it's both a funny joke and an illustrative joke. So in a way, I'm not answering your question because going forward, 
I am flummoxed and overwhelmed. In theory, yes, of course, I should write more uh, climate change fiction with an economic bent in it or uh, aspect to it to try to uh, illustrate the way the two com combine. In practice, I don't have a, a clue. I don't have a plot <laughs> and the characters. Uh -huh. So I'm I'm on the lookout. And I'm also feeling like Ministry for the Future is still having an impact worldwide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, when you publish a novel, it's like dropping a rock in a pond. There's a splash. There's a ripple that goes out. The ripple disappears. The rock's at the bottom of the pond and everybody forgets about it. Um, and that has generally not been quite true for my novels. Uh, the Mars Trilogy is selling better than it did when it came out in the early 90s. And Ministry for the Future still seems to be creating uh, intense discussions uh, and action committees, uh, uh, groups at universities starting up their own, uh, you might call them play acting or cosplay ministries for the future. Like if there was a real ministry for the future, and of course there is, called the UN and all the yeah. other things going on, then what would it do and how would it formulate itself? That's gone right to the uh, UN itself. So um, while that's happening, I don't think it's smart. Uh, for one thing, I can't do it anyway because I have no ideas. For another thing, it might not be smart to get in the way of Ministry for the Future and say, oh, look, I've got a new book. No, that makes good sense. But I, I will tell you that, you know, from our from our point of view, and Stan, I, I, I doubt you are following closely what we're up to, but what what we're up to is attempting to tear down the entire edifice of neoclassical economics and neoliberalism and replace it with a modern with a modern understanding of economic cause and effect. Yes. And um it, it basically we we are trying to rebuild the operating system of the world. And the thing that was magical about what you did was that you took really complicated abstract, you know, effectively technical and economic abstractions and turn them into a narrative that people could connect to and emotionally relate to and understand. And, you know, your attack of neoliberalism, your novelistic attack of neoliberalism was super effective. And indeed, it, it even in, influenced our own work uh, in some ways that I thought would, were pretty surprising. And and so we would just, you know, we encourage you to keep going. But that yeah. being said, like pour it on with Ministry of the Future and get the 10 part, <laughs> 10 part TV series done, right? Like, you you know, it, to be effective, you have to continue to focus on important things. But, but I do yeah. think that there is this really important role that you have played and can play in the future in turning these abstractions into stories that, people can wrap their heads around and change their behavior as a consequence of, which is super cool. We like to say that economics is a story that we we tell about ourselves to, to justify who gets what and why. And it's really useful to us to have better storytellers out there yeah, absolutely. telling this story. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Because one thing for us to, you know, try to explain to people why neoliberalism is wrong um, which we can do, I think, very successfully. But, you know, stories are what, you know, how most people interpret information. And it's just, it was just really great to see, uh, you know, new ideas take shape in a novel in a new way. I, I thought it was super cool. Yeah. Speaking of which, Stan, you know, I, I read a lot of science fiction in my youth. Uh, obviously, haven't read a lot of fiction recently, let alone uh, science fiction. But my recollection from the science fiction I read was that it had little or nothing to do with economics. Uh, and yet, really, economics is the economy is just another technology. So right. you would think that it's something that science fiction authors would be well suited to writing about and explaining. Um, uh, are you unique in the field or are there other writers who are mining the same ground? There are other writers mining the same ground. They will be sometimes called political science fiction or utopian science fiction. That's a very important strand. Everybody will make a call out to Ursula K. Le Guin's yeah, The Dispossessed. Of 
and then to H.G. Wells, a crucial figure in 20th century political economic thought, because his utopian novels were stubbornly persistent, um, not as popular as his early scientific romances, but they were there in the air. And when they came together at Bretton Woods to reconstitute the world, that was an H.G. Wellsian scientific meritocracy, Fabian socialist vision that got instituted at Bretton Woods. And Keynes, um, the crucial economic theorist of that, was uh, influenced by Wells. So now in the present day, well, there's um, it's often British. Uh, Ken McLeod in Scotland is intensely interested in these things. There are science fiction writers that are across the spectrum. So you have right-wingers writing military science fiction. You got libertarians writing this cyberpunkish, um, mean streets, get your own type libertarian, um, or start a new society where there are no rules at all, and various kinds of fantasy spaces, which I would uh, say they are necessary to explore all these things. I and some others, McLeod for sure, would represent the the left wing of that effort um, and um, a strange confluence of events having to do with my Mars trilogy being a precursor to this, let's build a new post-capitalist world and give it its history, has me ahead of the game. And now I'm an elder statement, statesman in that game. And you, and actually, it's it's hard. It's hard to write about economics in plots and in novels. But and I'm happy to have done it. I think people were hungry for it, and I think it can be done. But you need to have a vision of the novel that isn't the current literary fiction and their navel gazing focus on the problems of the individual bourgeois subject as if those were all psychological and not structural and economic. So you have to go back to Balzac and George Eliot and in science fiction, H.G. Wells and Olaf Stapleton and, and Le Guin, a crucial figure, they all focused on these matters throughout and the novel was stayed healthy in science fiction when it was unhealthy in the post-war literary fiction oh my God, I've got a problem or I've got a divorce or I've got an adventure. So one of the things that's happening with Ministry for the Future is the power of the novel to discuss the totality has been brought back into focus. And so I'm happy, not just personally, but as an English major, I'm happy for the idea that the novel still matters to people. You read mm -hmm. Ministry and suddenly you've got a uh, what Jameson calls a cognitive map of the world. And from there, you develop a political ideology that I'm always, I mean, I'm hoping you're talking to Piketty and to to um, progressive taxation as a powerful weapon. It'd be interesting to talk to Jeffrey Sachs and see what he has to say about the UN and the SDGs, et cetera. It's a clunky, weird process, this process that you're engaged in and that you're part of to um, figure out a coherent and explainable, better economic system that can be instituted in the current legal regime. So yeah. in other words, you don't need revolution. You don't need a miracle right. cure. You don't need a silver yeah. bullet. You need policies that could actually be enacted by legislatures today. Yeah. But, you know, at the risk of going down a deep, dark hole, you need more than policies, Stan. You need a new way to understand economic cause and effect, mm. which leads logically to policies that will actually make the world better. Mm, right. Because yes. because right. a list of policies is not that helpful. In fact, between the three of us, we could list that list of policies. Yes. The trick is getting people to understand how the world works in a way that makes the policies that will benefit them seem logical rather than illogical. And yeah. that's where neoliberalism did its damage. Right. Yes. Neoliberalism was a, a way of understanding economic cause and effect that led you to believe that making rich people richer, richer for example, would be good for everybody. Yes. <laughs> and that uh, and that the less constrained corporations were, uh, the better it would be for everybody. And that rising inequality was a feature, not a bug. You know, the problem is, is that our policymakers went to college and were taught these things in their economics classrooms and then enacted policy on that basis. Yes. 
Also in, also in their MBA programs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Purpose of the corporation is to enrich shareholders. And as right. we've said a million times on this podcast, they weren't making a normative claim. They weren't saying, fuck the poor. What they were saying is, if you run a corporation to enrich shareholders, it will be better for everybody. Yes. That was the that was the evil part, right? Yes. right. And you know, a, an entire generation of humans bought that nonsense and and acted consistent with that belief. And here we yes. are. And yes. that and that's what you have to undo. And that's our that's our project. And by the way, Eric and I are writing a book on economics that we hope will change this paradigm and you will be one of the first to get an early copy. Great. I love it. I I am. I love it. I'm completely on board with it. And I yeah. think you're talking about um, ideology, the imaginary yeah. relationship mm -hmm. to a real situation, but also talking about political economy. Yes. And you're right. Neoliberalism. It's now famous. The Mont Pelerin Society, Hayek yeah. and his crowd, uh, Milton Friedman, creating a paradigm that people thought made sense and yes. they bought into it at the political level. People and we are making progress. I mean, we're yeah. we're definitely making progress. The 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 momentous achievements of the Biden administration being the best example yes. of that yes. progress, right? Well, and also Australia and Colombia's election and Brazil's yeah. election, the yeah. kind of uh, pink Latin America um, that we are making progress. So it isn't it isn't like it's 1990. And I have been saying this stuff since 1990. But um, as a science fiction writer, you are allowed to be wacky. Yeah. Uh, and and marginalized uh, from the get go because science fiction is not exactly the home of actionable political theory. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, uh, Stan, we have one final question, which is why do you do this work? Well, I love novels. So you can unpack it from there. I read a novel. I'm in somebody else's head. I'm in a different time and place. It's like uh, magic. It's it's easy travel to other planets, but also this planet. Uh, so as an English major and a, just a lover of novels, I early on decided I would like to write novels myself and, and slowly um, taught myself the craft of it by doing it. And that's the only way you can learn writing novels is by uh, trial and error. It's a hard, long process. So at a certain point, science fiction was imposing itself on me as being the genre that was the best depiction of the way the 20th, late 20th century felt. In other words, literary fiction was a, a dead letter. It was late, late, late modernism. It was weak tea. It wasn't trying to express the totality anymore. Science fiction was, I became a science fiction writer, but that's got its problems. My stories are set in the future. It's obviously made up stuff. How could I give it the solidity of a good novel that's about the past or about the here and now, even though I had said it in the future. How? Well, I had to overcompensate in what you might call a kind of hyper-realism. And so even though it was on Mars set in the 22nd century, you were people groan at how um, meticulously I would describe the rocks, et cetera. But it was a hyper-realism so that you could feel, well, whatever else, at least this stuff is a realism. It's happening, even though it was set on Mars in the 22nd century. So as I decided to set my fiction in the future, or really something decided in me and I had to follow it, I was forced to try to think out what makes a novel feel real. Um, and there you end up at economics. You end up um, trying to express the totality by understanding its economic system and how much that influences everything else, which is a project you guys are already on to. So, so that's why I do this. Where it's it, You could, and it would be tedious to do so, go back to my novels of the late 80s when I was a young man and uh, Gold Coast and Pacific Edge start a process that then goes to the Mars trilogy, then goes to uh, the DC trilogy, then goes to these last, what I call the Orbit Six. They get uh, more and more obsessed by uh, political economy as being utopian science fiction. If you want to present a better world, it's going to have to have a better um, political economy than this world right now, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. So That's I'm right. a utopian science fiction writer because I would like to help to make a better world. And so novels have use value. And then I get dragged into all the rest of it as a kind of a uh, necessary corollary to my main project. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. We're huge fans. I, I just bought, um, was it New York 2124? Is that what it is? Uh, yeah, New York 2140. Well, God bless you for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, you will laugh. Given your backgrounds and interests, I think that um, New York 2140 is so much more fun than Ministry for the Future. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, um, I wouldn't call Ministry for the Future fun. Just no. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly doesn't start that no, way. No, <laughs> God. <laughs> Yeah. And 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 hopefully, Stan, uh, we can uh, move into that that post-capitalist world without the type of um, calamity you described in the book yeah. at the yeah. at the start of the book. Yes. Oh yes, yes. Well, the I was taught this at Glasgow by um, Zaid El Red Hossein, a Jordanian diplomat and one of my important teachers there. He said to me, Stan, you do not have to be in a plane crash to understand that being in a plane crash would be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So um, we yeah. tell these stories uh, and then we hope to avoid the plane crash. So That's right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was My absolutely pleasure. fantastic. Thank you. My pleasure. Now that I've actually spoken to Kim Stanley Robinson, it's clear to me why his novel is so good. Yikers, that guy is super smart. Yeah, <laughs> like, and, and, and like, thoughtful. And I guess, you know, leave it to a science fiction writer to have the chops to explain, you know, what really is a, a technology, the economy. Yeah, it's right. just another social technology. Yeah. And uh, to have the ability to explain technology uh, and advanced technology in a way that is uh, incredibly readable, yeah. uh, which, you know, I think a lot of uh, economists and economic writers and journalists uh, might take a lesson yeah. uh, from. Yeah, but I was just, I was incredibly impressed by the analytical nature of his approach and how carefully he had thought through what the challenge was and what he mm -hmm. needed to do. Uh, it's Of course, it's not surprising. People who are really good at things rarely just wing it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, you know, whenever you talk to somebody who's really, really good at something, you find out how carefully they have approached their subject. Um, right. It just, we, we don't get to talk. We talk to a lot of professional economists. We talk to very few uh, novelists. And I just, I couldn't have been more impressed. Uh, but if you took some offense or were put off a bit by uh, Stan talking about his uh, Marxist education and by the three of us talking about moving into a post-capitalist world, I just want to make clear both what you and I, Nick, are talking about, and also what Stan is talking about in the book, when we say post-capitalist, we're not saying socialism. We're not saying Soviet-style socialism, communism, a yeah. command economy. That's not at all what we're talking about. In, in that book and in our vision of the economic future, uh, there's still a place for markets, a very big place for markets. It's the dominant role in the economy is markets, but it is a different way of thinking about how markets work and also what their responsibility obligation is yeah. towards uh, society, the larger society as a whole. It doesn't yeah. view the economy as its own thing that you don't want to interfere with. It's integrated into the entire uh, global society. Yeah. I was also struck uh, by his uh, optimism. And I, I, you know, I substantially agree. I do think that we're making a lot of progress. Um, you know, one of the just parenthetically, one of the kind of exciting things uh, that's just getting reported on is that the ozone layer that we used to be so right. uh, worried about uh, continues to improve. And in, in fact, the ozone uh, layer, a new assessment um, released by a bunch of UN-backed scientists, uh, the ozone hole may go away as a right. consequence of concerted climate action. So right. this is just a great existence proof that you can actually solve these problems if you want to 
we just had right. to change the way that we made refrigerators and some other things and ban ban the chlorofluorocarbons which yeah. by the way we were told it was impossible first we were yeah. told oh there's no way these human-made chlorofluorocarbons there could be enough of them to destroy the ozone layer yeah. it's a very familiar story and then we were told oh no we can't possibly afford to uh, stop using the the fluorocarbons uh and it turns out we could and it turns out it did. And when we stopped using them, it's taken decades because it takes decades for uh, these uh, chemicals to uh, decompose into their constituent uh, molecules. But over time, they have um, been dissipating in the uh, in the atmosphere. And uh, every year that that ozone hole over the Antarctic is smaller and smaller. So this is an example of something which could only be addressed at the global level. It was a collective action problem that required every nation on earth and every major corporation to work together to address it and to agree not to cheat. And we did it. Yeah. It and works. we could do it again. That's right. If we could do it on the, on on ozone, we can certainly do it on carbon emissions, on climate change. Now, a lot of what's happening is baked in already from the carbon we've already released. Um, you, we can't, it, you know, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere is going to take a lot more time than putting it in. But if we slash emissions now over the next decade, uh, then we can avoid the worst projections, perhaps some of those um, catastrophes that uh, that Stan talks about in his book. Yeah, that's the optimism here that this existential crisis can be addressed. It can be addressed effectively, and most of all, that it can be addressed by better economics. That's right. Yeah. Well, fascinating guy, fascinating conversation. And yeah. um, I hope he writes a lot more books about these subjects. It will be very useful. That's right. We've got a link to it in the show notes, The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.